TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Gain of Function Research. How labs across the world make viruses more dangerous. Ralph Nader and Andy Kimbrell discuss why gain of function research must be banned. Excerpts from the Ralph Nader Radio Hour of July 18, 2020. Our first guest on the show today is Andrew Kimbrell. He has been on the show twice before to talk about why GMOs help corporations and not consumers. And this time, though, he isn't here to talk about genetically modified crops, but rather genetically engineered viruses and how the risks of reckless genetic engineering could potentially lead to more novel viruses. David? Andrew Kimbrell is an internationally recognized public interest attorney, bioethicist, and NGO leader. Mr. Kimbrell has been at the forefront of efforts to strictly regulate biotechnology, ensure responsible biomedical research, and eliminate biological weapon research. He is the founder and executive director of the Center for Food Safety, he is the author of Your Right to Know, Genetic Engineering and the Secret Changes in Your Food, and he is the editor of Fatal Harvest, The Tragedy of Industrial Agriculture. Thanks, Dave. Good yeah, welcome you, indeed, Andy. Before we get to the coronavirus COVID-19 aspect of our discussion, let's start with your point about lack of public knowledge or debate about what researchers around the world are genetically engineering. Yeah, Ralph, I think this is really just an absolutely critical issue that's been lost. Uh, the forest has been lost for the trees, if you will. We have talked on your show, and you know you've worked on this a lot, about the dangers of genetic engineering of plants or of animals, of humans. But we haven't talked much about the danger of genetically engineering of viruses. And I think far away from public debate, a small group of scientists over the last 10 or 11 years have used synthetic biology, synthetic virology, to be able to do something which is breathtaking. What they've done is they've taken the most dangerous viruses known to man, H5N1, bird flu, Marburg, Ebola, SARS, and instead of trying to find vaccines or to make these viruses less lethal, they have actually spent millions and millions of our taxpayer dollars, tens of millions of our taxpayer dollars, trying to make these viruses more dangerous by mixing and matching various parts of these viruses with other viruses, genetically engineering them, and then using animal experimentation and human cell line experimentation to make them more transmissible, to make them more lethal, to make them more infectious. Why would you want to do this? Yeah, I do have a degree, a master's degree in psychology, and I think I have to sort of rely on that to try and figure out why anybody would want to do this. One prominent virologist has called it the definition of insanity. I think there's a temptation, and this is probably goes back, Ralph, to the creation of nuclear weapons, the early experimentations that we all saw with genetic engineering, putting human genes into pigs and doing all sorts of crazy things. There's this problem with some of our scientists that just because you can do something, they think that you should do it. There really is no, and Mark Lipsitch and Thomas Engelby, Lipsitch of Harvard, of course, and Engelby, a prominent health security expert at Johns Hopkins, they've gone to great lengths to show there's no value. We've actually gotten zero value from these experiments. They say, hey, if we create these novel, brand new pandemic viruses, maybe nature will create them later and we'll have some kind of interventive strategy for them. But that makes no sense, of course, because nature has a million different you know, variations that we would never be able to predict. And so the idea that we somehow predict it in the laboratory 
and then spend tens of millions of dollars trying to find an interventive strategy when there could be millions of other combinations out there in nature. It makes no sense. There is one unfortunate place where this kind of research could be useful, and that would be the creation of biological weapons. I was going to say, Andy, and we spoke about this before, is that before Richard Nixon put an end, at least officially, to biological warfare research by the U.S. government, Richard Nixon, the government was funding scientists in ways that would really startle people. For example, there was a page one story many years ago, before the research was officially stopped, by the Wall Street Journal, which described a University of Wisconsin scientist on a government contract, DOD, Department of Defense contract, working in the lab to basically develop a more virulent form of dengue fever. So in the biological warfare context, they do all these things. Do you think this was sort of a precursor for this scientific curiosity? And by the way, the scientists who do this do give a scientific justification. You're absolutely right. Now that you mentioned, I do feel compelled to mention Casper Weinberger, who we all remember as the Secretary of Defense under Ronald Reagan. Casper Weinberger pretty much single-handedly rejuvenated the entire biological weapons program in the United States called the Biological Defense Research Program. I litigated against this about five times because these experiments were so dangerous. He felt that since there was sort of a standoff with nuclear weapons, why doesn't the United States get ahead on biological weapons? And this happened throughout the 1980s and into the early 90s. We were successful in closing down experiments in Dugway, Utah, and Fort Detrick, Maryland, and actually ordering through the National Environmental Policy Act programmatic environmental impact statement on the entire program. And it was eventually shut down after the first Persian Gulf War because of their failure to come up with an anthrax vaccine. And that infuriated and Senators John Glenn and Carl Levin helped close down that program. Unfortunately, I think after 9-11, I have had, I think, you know, credible information that they have revived some, but not all of those experiments. And they were incredibly dangerous and mixing all toxins, viruses, bacteria, you can imagine, because we got a lot of discovery there that was very, very frightening. But I think, again, the excuse for this kind of insanity of taking viruses and creating new novel pandemic viruses in laboratories is because that might just happen in nature and we'd have them in a laboratory ready to study and maybe even have a vaccine. Again, the problem with that is that, let me just give you an example. So there's something called H5N1, bird flu. Most people have heard of it. Just a few hundred people have been infected by it, but it has a 60%. That's six zero percent mortality. Whoever gets it, 60% of the people die. Compare that to, for example, what's happening with COVID-19. Some people say it's 1%, 4%, we'll see. But imagine 60%. Well, two researchers, Ron Fouché, who's up at the University of Erasmus in Netherlands, and Yoshihiro Kawaoka, who's a researcher at University of Wisconsin, they said, you know what? This isn't very infective, this bird flu. What if we were able to create a version that is airborne? You could get like the common cold. Let's try that. And they did. They actually were able to create this virus. So this, is, this virus escapes, right? 1.6 billion people could die, 60% of the world's population. Well, this caused a huge furor. In 2014, the Obama administration actually declared a moratorium on this gain of function, gain of threat. And I don't like calling it gain of function because that's euphemistic. It's gain of threat research, great threat, creating novel pandemic viruses. They said this is just too dangerous. Let me ask you a connected question here. 
they have these labs all over the world. They're in Europe, Africa, Asia, South America, North America. They're everywhere. What has been the record of the security of these labs? Because even Fort Meade in Maryland has had problems with security for this dangerous research. I mean, they have to have like 100% perfection that none of this stuff will leak out of the lab. What has been the experience? Well, there's four levels of biological safety, one, two, three, and four, four being the strongest, one being the weakest. You want some of these most dangerous experiments to be under BL4, and of course, I'm suggesting that we should never have this kind of experimentation at all. It should never happen. But the record is very poor. You know, every year we have over 100 accidents, and that's just the ones that are reported. There's been deaths. There's been quarantining. We've had numerous accidents. And then just just a month or so before we begin to learn about this COVID-19, the Global Health Security Index, for the first time, did a 195-country survey and said exactly how much biosecurity is out there, exactly the question you asked, Ralph. And their answer was, and get ready for this, that out of a score of 100 on a number of different biosecurity and safety points, out of a score of 100, a best possible score of 100, the average, average country of these 195 was 40.1 out of 100. Even the wealthier countries were 51 out of 100. Something like China that's doing a lot of these experiments was 51st in the world. So 50 countries were more safe than that. And other countries that had BL4 laboratories were even worse, Israel, Czech Republic. So it is abysmal. With the billions of dollars that have gone into the biomedical research industrial complex, if you want to call it that, for all these years and all these dangerous experiments, much less these gain-of-threat experiments that threaten half the world's population today as we speak because that moratorium was lifted. And in secret, the NIH pre-approved Ron Fouché's experiments in the Netherlands and Tawa Oka's experiment in University of Wisconsin. So those airborne bird flu research is ongoing right now, every day. So with that, and we have a 40% out of 100 safety, that combination is really, that should keep us up at night. Well, the obvious question is, how come there haven't been catastrophes? There has been catastrophes. Obviously, the SARS virus leaked twice from Beijing laboratories in China, and there was deaths. But here's the point. SARS, Marburg, Ebola, all those viruses are not highly transmissible. So what you do is you get two or three people to get sick and die. Sometimes they go home and their neighbors get sick and die. But these are not yet pandemic viruses because they don't have sufficient transmissibility or they don't have sufficient infectivity, having to do with the number of human cells that they can infect. So that's why, and that's why this makes this completely different. By taking pandemic viruses, by this gain of threat, so-called gain of function, but gain of threat on pandemic viruses to make them transmissible, we no longer have a problem with laboratory workers getting ill and dying, which is terrible. We don't want that. But now we have a huge public health threat, as we see with COVID-19, which I think was almost certainly created in a laboratory, certainly probably created in a laboratory, and with the potential of something as horrific as the bird flu, with these novel techniques, the novel experiments, we are now not just having viruses that have low transmissibility, even though they're very, they have high fatality, but rather ones that can create a huge public health problem. And remember, they're novel. They're creating stuff that's never been created before through genetic engineering and animal experimentation. So our immune systems are not like with COVID-19. We're not used to them. So not even ones we've had before that we would have any immunity to. That's ongoing right now. And there's a, obviously 
a few researchers around the world who are making hundreds of millions of dollars eventually on funding, and they represent a problem as far as what we need is an international moratorium or ban on all gain-of-threat, gain-of-function, gain-of-threat research on potentially pandemic viruses. It's insane. Whatever value that research would provide, it can't possibly equal the threat. You know, Ralph, I think that the public has not been in on this debate. It's been a secret debate with the NIH and other people who funded it. And I think COVID-19 is a product of this. And I know, you know, Trump wants to call it the China virus. Well, the money that went into the creation and the this genetic engineering of these coronaviruses in Wuhan was supported by the NIH and the USAID. So why wouldn't it be the NIH virus? Now, before our listeners either say, it's a conspiracy theory, or yes, it did come from the Wuhan Institute, contrary conclusions, I want to refer you to an article on Dr. Daniel Lucy who is an infectious disease specialist at Georgetown University, has huge experience around the world, has advised the World Health Organization, and really knows his stuff in past epidemics. And he was the subject of an article by the science writer of the New York Times, William Broad. And he has eight questions that he always asks scientists to ask about any kind of epidemic. He's a student of epidemics. And the paragraph that's relevant to this discussion is as follows, and I'm quoting from the Times article, quote, the sixth and seventh questions go to whether the deadly pathogen leapt to humans from a laboratory, although some intelligence analysts and scientists have entertained that scenario. No direct evidence has come to light suggesting that the coronavirus escaped from one of Wuhan's labs. Even so, Given the wet markets downgrading in the investigation, quote, these are Dr. Lucy's words, it is important to address questions about any potential laboratory source of the virus, whether in Wuhan or elsewhere, end quote, Dr. Lucy wrote in his blog post. That's one, to frame the discussion. The second, there is an article in the July-August Mother Jones on the virus situation. And in the article, it's an article by Rowan Jacobson, J-A-C-O-B-S-E-N. And in the article, it says, and I'm quoting, it's doubtful we'll ever pinpoint COVID-19's origins. Despite many expert skepticism, no one I talked to said they could confidently rule out the possibility that it accidentally escaped from a lab that was studying it. But it also could have been carried to Wuhan by someone who was infected elsewhere, or by an animal that served as an intermediate host. Yet it may turn out for the best that the Wuhan lab is now in the news. Most people don't realize how heroic some of its work was, or how it could have helped to head off the next pandemic. They also haven't grasped the danger posed by the work being done at high-security biolabs around the world. Yet the next pandemic could start from a lab in China but it could just as easily come from our own backyard. In recent decades, more diseases have been jumping from animals to humans, a phenomenon called zoonotic spillover. Experts blame our increasing incursions into the natural world. As we convert forests to farms and hunt wild animals, we give viruses new opportunities for spillover, end quote. Now, Andrew, you are a lawyer and you're a litigator, correct? 
Yes. Okay. So you know the difference between plausibility and probative evidence. Tell our listeners the difference. Well, I think that there's plausibility. I would switch it to preponderance of the evidence. Quite often in civil trials, you only have circumstantial evidence and some scientific evidence, but you don't have sufficient evidence to say beyond a reasonable doubt. You don't have to say, listen, this is the causative. This did it. We got it. Here's the gun. Here's how it happened. But you have circumstantial evidence. So you have a preponderance of it. Which is more likely? And that's all we can do right now with this. So which is more likely? Is it more likely that this chimeric virus that some bat met a pangolin in a bar in Wuhan, you know, and with a human and somehow all that happened? We know the wet market has been debunked. The Chinese government has debunked it. Science has debunked it. So we got to get rid of these wet markets. There are horror shows. They're unethical. They hurt wildlife. We should all get together and close every wet market there is around there. It's terrible. But it didn't create COVID-19. No respectable scientist now says it did. The bat soup, bat bite theory is dead. And there is no other natural theory. How did one animal get simultaneously infected by two or three other animals that had the unique, the unique capacity that COVID-19 has? And there's a very important article by Nicholas Petrovsky, very highly respected, one of the highly respected vaccine scientists in the world. In late May, 2020 came out, he and his team in Australia had done a comprehensive survey saying they looked at all the animals they could find, and there wasn't a single animal out there that could serve as the reservoir for this. And as he said, this virus was exquisitely designed to be infective to humans and completely unlike any virus they had known. Well, first of all, just to clarify for our listeners, you're saying there's a preponderance of the evidence that it accidentally was leaked from the lab. You're not saying deliberate. Right? No, no, I don't think it was deliberately released. And by the way, for the folks out there, I really get it. We all need to be worried about biological weapons research. We know what's going on in China. We know it's still going on in the U.S., almost certainly going on in Russia. So I don't want to give any more than I want to give the wet markets path. I don't want to give biological weapons research a pass. It's a huge danger, a biosecurity danger to us as well. However, it is highly, probably unlikely that this would, the COVID-19 would ever be a bioweapon. It would boomerang. It's highly infectious in humans. It would boomerang on your own population. It would make no sense. So yes, accidental release, not deliberate release, a product of genetic engineering that took a SARS-like virus. They wanted to see how transmissible they could make it. They wanted to see how lethal they could make it, and it escaped. I have to question your no respectable science, because I've heard on uh, radio and read in the media where there are scientists who say it came from animals. It just... Ralph, no, no, I, I want to say I said that the wet market hypothesis, the one you mentioned, the one that was popular in the media, that, that has been completely debunked. They still say it could have been natural, some other animals could have done it, but there is no real scenario for that. But here's what I want to point out. I don't want to get lost in this discussion, because this is where everyone gets lost. And it defeats the purpose of why I'm on your show today, which is I'm not concerned with proving one thing or the other. Shi Zheng Li, who is the bat woman, who was the director of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, she said when she heard and saw the the virus going out there and she saw the pandemic, she didn't sleep a wink for days. Afraid, this is her saying, I didn't sleep a wink for days because I was afraid that that virus had come from my lab. So we don't need a lot of people saying it was possible. I said, you know, Petrovsky, and you mentioned Lacey. Jonathan Latham has an excellent article on this. I recommend everyone read the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists on June 4th, 2020, with Milton Leitenberg's excellent and very well-researched analysis. You can make up your own decision about whether you think it was lab or natural. 
The most important thing is that the woman who actually was at the head of that gain of threat research funded by the NIH for five years, she said she was so afraid she couldn't sleep a wink, Ralph. You say she couldn't sleep at night, but what she is said. her position right now? Her position is she looked through all of her viruses and she said this was not one of them. Now, of course, we don't have those records and maybe she's right and maybe she's wrong. But the point I'm trying to make here is that if it could have happened, if this gain of research could have been a cause, is a reasonable belief that it could have been a cause, and there are scientists across the board, you mentioned several, and I mentioned several, including her, who said she was so afraid that her research had caused it she couldn't sleep, that's all I care about. That means that this research is admittedly something that could create the next pandemic. This is this gain of threat research, creating new pandemic viruses. Fouché is doing in the Netherlands with NIH money, that Kawaoka is doing in the University of Wisconsin. There's many, many other scientists, including Xi Zhengli in China, who are still doing it. That means they agree that this could be the source of a new pandemic. It's even worse if it's bird flu than we're seeing now. That's the only answer we need. What's the suggestion for further investigations? Where, you, don't, who? You, don't, you don't need further investigation unless you want to try and prove it one way or the other. And China probably will never release any records from that laboratory. They haven't. China has actively destroyed a huge amount of evidence. This is in the public record. I'm saying is that what we need now is to say research on vaccines, great, go for it. Viral research, go for it. You know, lots of research is really important, but we need to reinstate the 2014 Obama moratorium on this gain of threat research, potential pandemic viruses. It represents an existential threat to the human population. It's providing little or zero help in any vaccine. And again, I, I rely on Mark Lipsitch and Tom Inglesby and Richard Ebright, the top scientists in the field who have said exactly what I'm saying. And Mark Lipsitch at Harvard, epidemiologist specialist at Harvard, has said for every year that they work on one of these pandemic viruses with this gain of threat engineering animal research, there's a one in 1,000 chance of an escape, accidental escape from the lab. So this has not been part of the public debate. We've debated nuclear weapons, we've debated other GMOs, but we have not said we need a moratorium, at least multi-multi-year moratorium, hopefully a ban, on the genetic engineering of these viruses, these potential pandemic viruses, where they're providing us almost no medical. So that's the key that we need to focus on, rather than back and forth or using it as anti-China or Trump. That's the hidden, that's the forest that we need to look at and not get so obsessed with the trees. Hundreds of scientists, came together in 2014 to get this moratorium done. It's really unusual to have a moratorium on research and science. And they got it done in 2014 because of the fear of this bird flu research that was being done that could lead to this fantastic, horrifying pandemic of 1.6 billion people dying. Well, that's still out there. And so I, I find it a little shocking that these experiments were approved in secret a little over a year ago, reapproved after they lifted the moratorium, and there's no public debate about that. The Nuremberg Code said very explicitly that you should never do research whose threat to the public is greater than the advantage that you're getting. And this seems to me clearly an example of that. A similar code in the Inter-Academy uh, Partnership. That's, I'm going to read it to you. This is the code that's supposed to be the ethics behind all biomedical research. And it says, scientists have an obligation to do no harm. They need to take into consideration the reasonably foreseeable consequences of their own activities. Well, 
this kind of research obviously violates that. It's just a small sector of the research that's going on. And it's fairly new because of the new technologies in synthetic virology and in genetic engineering. But it represents an existential threat. What you're saying is, in legal terms, is the burden of proof is on the scientists. It's not on the people who fear the consequences of it or on the potential victims. It's on the scientists and those in Congress and elsewhere who fund them. Uh, let me quote your statement recently. This is Andrew Kimbrell. Quote, unfortunately, many powerful forces at the NIH, World Health Organization, etc., have for self-interested reasons, including hundreds of millions in potential funding, continued to downplay the role of this profoundly hazardous research in the current pandemic and its dangers in creating future pandemics, end quote. You're referring to the hazardous research where, and what are the self-interested reasons? Well, there are researchers who want to do this research, and they're doing them. I mentioned several by name. I don't know what it feels like to come home at dinner and say, hey, honey, I just created a novel pandemic bird flu that could kill 1.6 billion people if it got out of my laboratory. I can't think you could possibly explain that to yourself. It's done no good. It hasn't helped anybody. The same with the research that Xi Zhengli was doing in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It hasn't helped with a vaccine. It hasn't helped us with any coronaviruses. All it did was create the potential and the possible, some of us think probable, pandemic that we're facing. So, And we know that this kind of research is going around the world, and I think some of it's probably being secretly done for biological weapons research. So we need to expose this. You know, the genetic engineering movement has been very strong around the world. We've seen the dangers of genetic engineering bacteria and crops. We know the threats of trying to genetic engineer humans. We need to add to that as part of our movement to say the genetic engineering of these pandemic viruses to make them more threatening by scientists who can do it but shouldn't do it needs to be stopped, just like some of this other research. And actually, on an existential basis, actually is even more threatening to the human population than other forms of genetic engineering. Two questions. Why hasn't Congress had a congressional hearing on this in the House or Senate since it's been going on a long time and since Obama put a moratorium on it in 2014? You'd think the Democrats in the House would be interested in it in the Science and Technology Committee. And second, should there be an international treaty movement getting underway fast? Uh, and again, I, I really want to give credit to, they haven't been speaking out lately, and I'm sorry they haven't, but the the Cambridge Working Group did a great job. It's a group of scientists who got this moratorium done. We need more hearings. We had them then, early, in, but that's six, seven years ago. We need them now, urgently, because U.S. funding is a huge source in this. I will note that the number two funder of the World Health Organization after the United States is the Gates Foundation, not a country. The second greatest funding of the World Health Organization is the Gates Foundation. We need people like at the Gates Foundation, we need these other countries to say, you know what, we also are not going to support this particular genetic edge research, very, very, very dangerous, shouldn't be doing it. It reminds me of the beginning when we started looking at nuclear fission, when we looked at that kind of a level of danger to the world. We didn't do so well back then. Maybe we can do better now and hit the, get this research, you know, which is only about 10 or 11 years old, for once and say, you know what? No, we're not going to do this. It's way too dangerous. We, as a human population, as an international community, as an international research community, are going to say no to that small little viral research industrial complex, which is really small but very powerful, to say no. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Andrew Kimbrell, 
who is, among other things, the founder of the Center for Food Safety, as well as the director of the International Center for Technology Assessment. To be continued. That was a discussion of gain-of-function virus experiments from the Ralph Nader Radio Hour of July 18, 2020. An audio recording and transcript of the full show with specifics on how to create a grassroots movement to bring about a ban are on the website of the RalphNaderRadioHour.com. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.